Hello, and welcome to the Emerging Technology Horizons podcast. I'm Arun Serafin, Executive Director of the Emerging Technologies Institute at the National Defense Industrial Association. Today's podcast will focus on the Ronald Reagan Institute's recently released National Security Innovation Base Report Card. This is a new project focused on assessing the health of the national security innovation ecosystem and built off the Institute's numerous activities, including its 2019 task force on 21st century national security technology and workforce, which was an ambitious project designed to help the United States achieve long-lasting competitive advantage in technology and innovation. My guests today are, are two good friends who I've worked with over the years, Rachel Hoff and Eric Snellgrove. Thanks to you two for joining. I'm gonna do a quick bio for both of you. Rachel serves as policy director at the Ronald Reagan Institute, the Washington DC office of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation. Before joining the Institute, she was speechwriter and policy advisor for John McCain at the Senate Armed Services Committee. Rachel has conducted research and outreach for a number of think tanks in Washington, including the American Enterprise Institute, the American Action Forum, and the Foreign Policy Initiative, an organization she helped found in 2009. She's also worked as a legislative assistant for Chairman Matt Thornberry, who's a member of the NDIA ETI Advisory Board. Eric Snellgrove currently serves as the CEO of the Revere, of Revere Federal Strategies, a strategic advisory and government relations firm that works with defense technology companies. Prior to his current role, Eric was a professional staff member with the House Armed Services Committee, where he oversaw more than $50 billion in defense programs and advised members of Congress on many issues, including science and technology, counterterrorism, special operations forces, cyberspace activities, and emerging threats. Eric previously served in senior positions at SOCOM, focused on intelligence, counterterrorism, and sensitive activities. Eric's also a former active duty United States Air Force intelligence officer, having served in both Afghanistan and Iraq. Please join me in welcoming both Eric and Rachel to today's podcast. So Eric and Rachel, um, you know, with that background and with that introduction, let, let's just start for our, our NDIA members. Could you just tell us what is the Reagan Institute and what kind of work does it do? Absolutely. Thanks, Arun, and, and thanks so much for having us. It's a great opportunity to speak with, with your members and your listeners about the work the Reagan Institute is doing on, on this important issue set. The Ronald Reagan Institute, as you said in your intro, is the Washington, D.C. office of the Reagan uh, Presidential Foundation and Library out in California. And our mandate here in D.C. is really to actively promote and advance President Le Reagan's legacy um, in the context of today's world. And so whereas, you know, any presidential library that, that um, your members may have visited um, is there to really kind of preserve the history of that presidential administration, the Reagan Institute uh, takes the approach of, of uh, looking at current policy challenges through the lens of President Reagan's legacy, his values, his vision and leadership. And to the topic um, topics that you work on at NDIA with regard to emerging technologies, you know, and, and that we'll talk about today in the podcast with regard to our um, work on the national security innovation base. It's not that President Reagan, of course, you know, had much to say about any of the particular 21st century technologies that didn't exist in the 1980s that very much are driving competition today. But if President Reagan knew that technology was central to the strategic competition that America faces in the world and that we were falling behind to our strategic competitor, that would be a problem that we all can agree President Reagan would want to get after. And so that's why the Reagan Institute is engaged in this work. And the scorecard that we're going to talk about today is just one of the products. But, you know, can you talk about some of the other products of, of the Institute? 
Sure. So um, we're most known in the defense and national security space for hosting the annual Reagan National Defense Forum out at the Reagan Library every December. That remains kind of our hallmark convening. And really, it's where all of our work related to um, the policy products that we've put out in the intervening uh, months and years since we started the Institute uh, have been born. So we have these conversations on stage at the Reagan National Defense Forum. Increasingly in recent years, those conversations have centered around issues related to technology and emerging uh, innovation um, as they uh, emerge in importance in this ecosystem. And so um, as we've seen them grow in importance on stage at the Defense Forum, we've seen a, um, that as the priority for our Reagan Institute policy work. You mentioned a task force we convened a couple of years ago under former Senator Jim Talent and former Deputy Secretary Bob Works leadership um, that focused on similar issues related to the national security innovation base um, as well as workforce. And then we also convened a task force and put out a report uh, related to our nation's industrial base and the importance of our manufacturing competitiveness and capacity as it relates to our ability to compete on the global stage as well. All of that information is available on our website. Our newest NSIB report card is hot off the presses and anyone can stop by the Reagan Institute to pick one up and all of that work in particular is on our website at reaganfoundation.org slash NSIB. That's great. Um, so a little more background before we dive into the report card. That phrase, national security innovation base. So I'm familiar with defense industrial base. Being a former congressional person, I know what the National Technology Industrial Base is, NTIB. Um, what is NSIB versus those other things? Are NDIA members, for example, members of the National Security Innovation Base? Well, let me start, if I might, with, with my thoughts on it, and then I'll turn it to my colleague, Eric, um, who, who has worked heavily on these issues alongside you um, at the Armed Services Committees for, for his thoughts. Um, in, in my view, the National Security in, uh, Innovation Base is inclusive of the traditional industrial base, the DIB or defense industrial base as we've conceived of it traditionally, but broader. And so whereas historically um, industrial considerations around asking, you know, the DOD asking companies to bend metal and build ships and tanks and planes and weapon systems were, were how uh, we were going to fight and win any potential uh, war. When we think about war and even competition short of war in the future, there's a whole other set of technologies that don't involve bending metal. And in, in fact, our, our, um, our nation's most innovative technology companies that are leading in that space kind of aren't uh, accustomed to working with the DOD as the traditional defense industrial base or as closely as the traditional defense industrial base has. So the way I think of it is, you know, it's an ecosystem of both public and private um, actors, not just government and uh, defense and, and technology companies, but also academia and venture capitalists and, and sources of, of funding as, as, um, as concerns these questions. Uh, but yeah, I, I would put both our nation's kind of most innovative traditional defense companies and uh, technology or what some people call dual use companies in that ecosystem under that umbrella. But Eric, love to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yeah, you know, I, I would just add that, you know, these different segments, these different organizations that make up the National Security Innovation Base, you know, they're, they're often cooperative, whether they know it or not, um, very loosely federated, uh, but their efforts are largely uncoordinated, both at the local, state, and the federal level. So we also view this as a report card. Um, 
view this report card as an opportunity to recognize their involvement in the NSIB and bring them into the conversation. That's great. So Eric introduced this report card. So can you tell us um, what is the what is the report card? What was your methodology for creating it, and uh, what indicators did you use to assess the NSIB? Sure. I'll I'll kind of again tee off that question, and then Eric can get a little bit more into into indicators. On methodology, our goal with the report card itself was to to really do an assessment of this ecosystem. The one that Eric described is kind of loosely federated but and cooperative, but, but certainly not uh, integrated in the sense that some ecosystems are. And so the first step of our methodology was to develop a set of key diagnostic indicators. We landed on 10 of them. Um, Eric can highlight a few, uh, but just to continue with methodology, each of the 10 indicators was then, um, we, we sort of developed a set of assessment questions if we were to measure this indicator, what might we think about? What might the key questions be like if we were to think especially about what a healthy and integrated national security innovation-based ecosystem would look like? We developed a set of criteria, two or three usually per indicator you'll see in the uh, drill down slides of the report card. And then each criteria um, was supported by a set of metrics, measurable metrics, and we assigned grades um, for those for each criteria based on a comprehensive fact base that we sourced along with, um, it's important to mention, our thought partners at McKinsey and Company. Dale Schwartz um, uh, leads a team of, of wonderful analysts there at, at McKinsey who helped source that comprehensive fact base. And then uh, Eric and the Reagan Institute team sort of said, okay, well, how do we understand that fact base? Assign a letter grade. We did kind of proper you know, high school report card, um, ABC scale. Uh, for each criteria, um, and then that kind of averaged out to the overall grade for each indicator. So we didn't give the National Security Innovation Base a grade as a whole, a singular grade, but what what it boils down to is kind of 10 key uh, or individual grades for those 10 key indicators. And then importantly, and Eric will talk more about this too, we generated an associated set of recommendations for how to improve in particular the lower scoring indicators. So, uh, Rachel, tell me about the team, and that's an ambitious project that you just laid out there. Tell me about the team you put together to do this. Tell me about the data sources that you had to reach into. Were those government data sources? Were they industry data sources? Were they financial data sources? How did, how did you go about taking that giant problem that you just described and breaking it down to turn it into the report card? Well, all of the above, and you're right to note that it was certainly a team effort. Um, Eric and I, especially Eric, uh, put a, a huge amount of work into, into this project, but there, there was a team, um, certainly um, some policy assistance on the Reagan Institute side. I'll acknowledge Connor Fiddler and Thomas Kenna, um, who assisted with the work, and also the team at McKinsey & Company that I mentioned. Um, and then I, I want to mention, too, and you'll see this um, kind of in the front matter of the report card itself, we also assembled an advisory board. So it's a group of around a couple dozen, uh, maybe around 20 um, key stakeholders, really, from the various aspects of this ecosystem. So you'll see former DOD officials and members of Congress. You'll see leaders from traditional defense and innovative technology companies. You'll see you know, folks representing kind of the venture capital community and academia. And the goal was really to... Um, have that advisory board um, there to kind of 
direct, offer strategic guidance and validate the, the, the work and assumptions as we built out the framework, settled on the indicators, and then assessed with that fact base. Um, Eric, you can probably get into a little bit more of, of the fact base in particular when we when we talk through the key indicators, but Arun, suffice it to say, um, it was a, a, a vast array of sources, um, both from, you know, uh, information that's that's publicly available and, and also um, some fact base that McKinsey brought to, to bear in terms of their own research and analytical work in this in this space. Yeah, so then, you know, you take those people, all that data, you try to develop some key indicators to look at. So Eric, what were those indicators and, and what kind of cross-cutting themes did you start to pull out of that, that mass of, of data and analysis? Yeah, you know, great question. One of the, the most notable themes uh, throughout many of the indicators is this notion that the U.S. government, and you know, by that I, I'm inclusive of both the Department of Defense and Congress, have to be a better customer to the national security innovation base. Uh, you know, U.S. government leaders are consistently uh, articulating the need to access this di these diverse sources of innovation, but the follow through on that vision, you know, uh, really across the customer community, both executive and legislative side, has has fallen short. Um, you know, and, and I think that's blurring the demand signal for the NSIB when they're looking at making hard investment decisions on whether or not the Department of Defense is going to be a worthwhile customer. Um, and when it comes time to make some of these hard decisions for the DOD, whether that's divestments, trade-offs in a constrained resource environment, expansion of new authorities, or even accepting some risk in certain technology areas, I think generally the NSIB has been you know, somewhat disappointed. Um, you know, as you mentioned in your intro, I started my career as an intelligence officer in the DOD. Spent much of the next 12 years deploying to Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, was fortunate to have the opportunity to experiment with a lot of new technologies, some developed by the DOD labs, uh, you know, federally funded research and development centers, and others developed solely uh, within the private sector. And it really did give me an appreciation for how important that end user feedback is on the front end for defense technology but also aggravation when you see how difficult it can be to scale uh, from that prototype into actual fielded capability that you need to further the mission. Um, the other theme that, that is really present throughout many of the indicators is this, this notion that we have to go faster and be bolder in, in our reform efforts. Uh, you know, major defense acquisition program cycle times are still you know, on 20 year averages. And even with record high budgets and record private equity, venture capital funding pouring into defense technology companies, the valley of death for startups is still looming. Um, and that talent gap is, is just growing uh, from generation to the next. So you're still in the business of warnings and indicators. That's, that's good, to, good to hear. Um, but it's a report card in the end after, after that work. So tell us about the grades, right? What was, what was the the best grade you gave? What was the worst grade you gave and, and why? Yeah. So customer clarity uh, was one of the lowest, actually the lowest score uh, of a D. Uh, and that was really due to that continued lack of consistency between that rhetoric about the need to innovate and the, the that discrepancy with actually making the big bets and the follow through. Um, there are also really inconsistent tech priorities across the various services and organizations. Um, you know, novel pathways to, to, to scale the technology from prototype to capability are still small, um, which does create a really blurred demand signal when companies are making those hard decisions. 
Um, and obviously, you know, the failure of Congress to pass on time appropriations <laughs> adds additional delays and costs into this already constrained uh, defense budgeting and staffing process, which you're very familiar with as being a commissioner on the PPBE. Um, but it, it does, you know, it creates slow procurement pathways for even the most successful members of the NSIB to get their technology into the hands of the warfighter. So customer clarity is an important point, um, but at some point we also have to do what's right for the taxpayer and the end user. And so at some points that's sort of being a tough customer. So when you say customer clarity, you know, what's an example of a behavior that might change that would, would help but still not put us in a position where we get ripped off. Yeah, you know, I think there are simple things that wouldn't necessarily cost the government anything other than some time. Uh, but when you look at the the modernization priorities across the DOD, uh, and you know, Mike Brown from DIU is famous for saying this as well. Only a handful of those emerging technologies and modernization priorities have a clear path to a program of record. So if you are a member of the NSIB, whether uh, in academia or uh, or a small business. Uh, and you know you're coming to the end of a, of a small business innovation research you know funded program. You're kind of left wondering what's next. You know where do I go from here? How does my technology align with what the warfighter needs when they're stating it's a priority, but they're not giving me a doorway to even knock on? So what's an example then of an area where you gave gave the the system a, a, a better grade, a good grade? And, and I just want to clarify, right, these grades are not for the Department of Defense or the Congress. It's for the system as a whole. Is that, is that correct? A absolutely. Yeah, we are not pointing this, uh, pointing blame on any one individual or office. This is, uh, you know, th this is really a review of, of the system itself, that ecosystem. Um, and on that note, you know, the top grade in the report card was innovation leadership, which received an A minus. America's overall innovation leadership remains a competitive advantage, but one that is at risk and we cannot be complacent. The U.S. still leads, um, you know, knowledge output based on some of the key indicators that we looked at, you know, number of global patents uh, and continues to be a leader in critical technologies based off a host of third party assessments that we reviewed. However, strategic competitors such as China are gaining influence within um, a lot of these international standards organizations and have passed the U.S. in percent of research papers and some of the most cited academic journals, which is an indicator of research influence and quality of research. Um, you know, the U.S. has to be more proactive in, you know, in communicating the risks of some of these Chinese influence within these standard setting organizations that, that do threaten some fair competition, impact privacy con, uh, considerations, and then are increasing some of the barriers to trade. But overall, American leadership in innovation is still strong. I might jump in there just to strong. say, um, when we talk especially about the higher scoring grades, it's important to um, to clarify, especially with, I, I imagine, uh, an audience like this this podcast, um, that, uh, you know, A plus is not the only good grade. Eric mentioned an A minus for innovation leadership is the, the best grade that we gave in the report card. But even Bs across the indicators are really meant to identify key sources of strength uh, in this American national security innovation ecosystem. Maybe there's some room for growth, whereas A's are really meant to indicate here's where we are best in class, living up to, you know, America's potential and the national security mandate. And then as we get down into C's and D's, that's where, you know, we, we were trying to identify vulnerabilities and consistencies um, and certainly um, where those vulnerabilities might lead to undermining the health of the, the ecosystem overall or 
uh, become kind of catastrophic areas of weaknesses for for our leadership. And as ex-congressional staffers, all three of us are much more comfortable living in the world of C's and D's and you know asking hard questions about them. But um, one of the areas that you touched on uh, in the in the report card, which we're working on here at NDIA and at ETI, and you all are working on as well, is uh, on uh, high skills immigration. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, can you can you tell us what you found there uh, in in the in the world of workforce and high skills immigration? Yeah, uh, so talent base was one of the critical indicators that we reviewed for the report card, and unfortunately, it did receive a D plus. Um, and we highlighted some specific areas uh, where recommended improvement would be important. Um, and for this indicator, we did explore both domestic talent uh, in STEM, uh, and, but also skilled trades and how well the U.S. leads in attracting and retaining foreign talent for national security missions. So, you know, domestically, the U.S. talent pipeline is somewhat strained. You know, U.S. students are underperforming their peers in NSIB critical capabilities. Um, You know, the defense workforce does not fully engage some of the best of U.S. talent, uh, including proportion of women in the defense workforce. It's somewhat aging, and it's under-indexed on proficiency in priority technology areas. But the foreign talent pipeline is also facing some pretty considerable challenges with a lack of diversity that does present some pretty significant vulnerabilities, the lengthy pathways for visas, competitor programs that are pulling talent away from the United States, and really- Like a thousand talents program. Exactly. Um, you know, and on the other hand, once foreign talent is engaged on the NSIB, the U.S. excels at retaining it, which makes the value proposition that much greater if we can just create additional pathways on the front end to keep them here and then contribute to the NSIB for, for you know, it, what, in many cases is the rest of their say, life. I think this, Arun, is an area of the report card that, that really does lean into uh, President Leg- Reagan's legacy as well. Um, in particular, you know, when you think back to the Cold War, so much of our ability to compete with the Soviet Union was based on our ability, America's ability to benefit from the brain drain of the rest of the world. Um, and if, if we're going to give up the strategic advantage of being able to attract and retain that, that foreign talent, you know, I mean, it's um, not overly sophisticated, but, but incredibly important to say people want to live in the United States of America. And if we're attracting our best and brightest, especially to be educated here at our, um, you know, amazing universities, but then not providing those pathways that Eric talked about to stay, it's really um, underutilizing a historical and, and strategic advantage that we feel strongly we should, in fact, lean into. And it's interesting that, you know, your, your national security innovation base that you're describing is not the traditional big defense contractors or even their supply chains. It's not just the government labs. It's also the emerging technology companies, the Silicon Valley kind of companies, the venture-backed companies. But you're saying they're all facing these common workforce challenges. Is that correct? I'll start just to say that that's certainly what we found even as we um, have done kind of our, our twin task forces on the innovation base and the industrial base. Um, we heard a lot of similar challenges. Of course, very different ramifications, whether you're talking about uh, you know skilled trades or you know, trying to, to get foreign PhD students to stay after graduation, but similar challenges and similar ramifications for the industry as a whole. Um, and then and then also, of course, when we think about the the public side of this equation, how do we attract the attract the best talent into government service? Um, you know, that that's a question as well. We don't need, you know, we we want 
good, smart people working for traditional defense industrial based companies. We want them working for those Silicon Valley techs for uh, tech firms. And we want some of them working at the Department of Defense and NSF and, and you know, uh, at government labs and and in at universities that are partnering with with the, the government. And so, um, you know, it's it's kind of a, um, a, a challenge that I think we're seeing across all different employers in the NSIB space, certainly traditional defense and uh, emerging tech companies, but also across uh, you know, the public side of the ecosystem as well. So based on the scorecard and the grades, um, what, what are some of your key recommendations for decision makers in industry, government, both executive branch and legislative branch? Yeah, the, the report card included five uh, signature recommendations, and many of these recommendations did address indicators that had scored lower, had uh, specific deficiencies that we feel warranted a clear plan of action, or in some cases, positive trends that represented opportunities uh, to emphasize his best practices for, for expansion. Um, one of those areas was the relationship between DOD, Congress, and the private investment community. With the majority of research and development funding for emerging technologies originating from the private sector, we strongly recommended continuing to strengthen this relationship by expanding public-private partnership opportunities, uh, private matching fund opportunities, and then exploring other financial mechanisms, such as uh, those being uh, uh, explored by the DOD's new Office of Strategic Capital. Uh, I know, you know, Arun, you've been briefed on on some of those efforts, uh, as has uh, most of the public now. you know, but we feel their ambitions and the additional authorities that uh, they're currently looking for that would uh, expand access to loan and loan guarantees and other financial tools could really help uh, specific entities in the NSIB, uh, you know, bridge that valley of death and get into full production. Uh, some of the other recommendations, in fact, the next two recommendations focused on, on talent base. Uh, not only uh, increasing our investment in programs that address some of those those aging STEM and skilled trade workforces, but also increasing the DOD scholarship for service output and scaling those early education programs that f- provide familiarization with national security challenges, get young kids excited about these programs, um, you know, like those for uh, hacking for defense. You know, there's, there's 17.9 million students enrolled in post-secondary education in the U.S., uh, hacking for de- hacking for defense reaches about 400 a semester. So 0.002% of U.S. students have an opportunity to participate in that program. It seems like we could do better and create more opportunities for those shared experiences. Eric gets an A for math right there. That was good. <laughs> yes. It's one of my, I, I took a hacking for defense course. No, I'm just and the, the next recommendation, which also focused on talent base, was specifically focused on what we talked about before, foreign talent pipelines uh, and creating additional pathways for um, for foreign students to remain in the country upon graduation and work on national security problems. The, uh, the fourth recommendation in the report card uh, was specifically looking at uh, international science and technology program partnerships, which we haven't talked about yet today, but is actually near a decade low. Uh, and we understand it's not just about quantity. These partnerships need to be strategically aligned against critical technologies, um, uh, defense modernization priorities, uh, global su- supply chain vulnerabilities, uh, s- supply chain resilience, human capital exchanges, and then shared R&D investments to offset what can be you know, fairly expensive investments into some of these research and development programs. So more things like uh, AUKUS, you would say. More things like AUKUS, but even at the grassroots level, things like Task Force 59, uh, 
uh, in CENTCOM, uh, which is, you know, recently announced expanding to some other areas of operation as well. But, you know, it's the, the experimentation with new capabilities combined with, uh, uh, you know, feedback from end users and feedback from partners, because not all of our, our partners require AUKUS-like capability. Oftentimes, it's, it's much less sophisticated, but just as worthwhile on the battlefield. And then finally, the, the last recommendation was, you know, a little bit broader, but the DOD has to make bigger, bolder bets on emerging tech, uh, emerging capabilities, space, autonomy, artificial intelligence, the capabilities that are more resilient and more effective in today's changing threat environment. Now, alongside that, Congress can provide a little bit more flexibility and funding to help accelerate um, and keep up with technological advances, provide avenues for some of these non-traditional suppliers to not just, uh, you know, receive a, a prototype other transaction authority, but scale to, to production. Um, and, you know, these are critical to the customer clarity indicator that we talked a lot about today and, and clear, kind of cleaning up that customer demand signal that's coming from the, um, coming from both the department and, and Congress. Uh, and, you know, we very much look forward to the, the recommendations of the PPBE Commission because we think some of what we're talking about on customer clarity is directly tied to the, uh, the system that we've built. Well, I would say as a member of that commission, we definitely uh, um, heard your uh, reports, looked at the report card. We're looking forward to engaging you guys in, in more detail on uh, helping shape our recommendations on the, on the commission side. Um, so, uh, you know, I, the commission's definitely reacting to the report card. Uh, how has the Congress and the, and the Pentagon and well, the White we've, House We've had a great response so far in the, the briefings that, that we've done with officials both on Capitol Hill and, and in the administration. I'll commend to your listeners as well. We, we hosted a public conference and National Security Innovation Base Summit at the Reagan Institute in March when we launched the report card and, and they can hear for themselves um, the reaction from government officials like uh, Dr. LaPlante and, and um, some acquisition officials from the department and, and kind of former policymakers as well as members of Congress. Um, one thing I'll say in particular in terms of how we, how we and those are all, those are all available on your YouTube. They are, yeah, they're available at that website I mentioned earlier, ReaganFoundation.org/nsib. Um, and one of one of the things in particular that we've heard was is useful to these uh, policymakers is exactly one thing that we were hoping to fill, kind of a gap that we were hoping to fill with the report card, which was to do kind of a, an honest and holistic assessment to identify where. We need more investments, more policy interventions, what have you. You know, there's been a lot of work um, in this space in the last, I don't know, 10 years, right? Think tanks, industry organizations, yours, yours um, institute is a great example of that. But think tanks doing, doing task forces. We've done task forces. Uh, there's been congressionally you know, congressional task forces and congressionally mandated commissions. And, and all of that is really important. Um, and what part of our kind of going in assumption and, and doctrine was, okay, let's, let's see what's making a difference, where we've moved the needle and where, where we still are identifying weaknesses in this ecosystem that maybe aren't on the radar of the various task forces and commissions and, and um, working groups that, that have already uh, spoken on this topic. And so that's been one thing in particular that policymakers have highlighted, um, certainly the, the recommendations that Eric reviewed 
uh, targeted at some of those lower scoring indicators. And, and one thing I'll say, you know, the initial, this is the first report card. So we kind of did a trend line assessment going back about five years. Are we moving in the right direction on this in the wrong direction on this or staying static? So um, Eric mentioned our highest scoring leader was uh, indicator, leading indicator was American innovation, but the trend line on that is, is headed in the wrong direction. And what we'll be able to see as we do future report cards is kind of see exactly exactly that. Well, where are those trend lines actually going when we when we repeat the assessment moving forward in the future? So we're coming up on the close here, and I, I just want to close with a, a, a couple of a couple of questions. One is, it, it, do you feel like most of these recommendations and, and most of these challenges are are the solutions are pretty bipartisan in nature. I mean, you're, it's the Reagan Institute, but that doesn't imply anything about the style of problem you're looking at or solution that you're seeing. Is that fair to say? That's a really important point, Arun. Thanks for raising it. I mentioned our advisory board uh, earlier in the podcast, and and I failed to note uh, that that it is a bipartisan advisory board. I mentioned our task force co-chaired by Bob Work and Jim Talent earlier, a bipartisan pair there. And one of the things that I've been really encouraged by, especially somebody who's been working in um, policy circles in DC for, for coming on 20 years now, is that this actually remains a really important area of bipartisan cooperation. So I'll even say, you know, the term national security innovation base and other people, you know, we use that language, we like that language, you think it's a helpful kind of um, framework, but, you know, other people can call it other things and, and the important aspect is that the, the issues are getting attention and action. But that's a that's a term, the national security innovation base that came out of the Trump administration's national security strategy. Nadia Shadlow, um, who worked on that strategy, served on our, our task force on the topic. And it was it was kind of introduced in the strategy, but didn't have um, we thought it was helpful, but didn't have much context to it. And so so we've tried to do some work to build out the concept and and uh, define the ecosystem and assess now the ecosystem as well as providing recommendations. But even though, you know, there aren't too many things, uh, you know, that, that come out in the context of a partisan administration that really do gain sustained bipartisan traction. But in my view, this issue set is really one of them. And it's, it's a good example of something where you've seen sustained attention to this issue set into now the Biden administration. Certainly there are um, both Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill who are leading on these issues. So last question for me. So it's a report card and the student did pretty good. Okay. Um, but there's other students in the class. So how are the other students doing if you tried to give them similar grades? So I'm going to pick a country at random. Denmark. No, China is what I'll pick. How is China doing? Yeah, and these same similar similar indicators. What grades would you give China? Well, we'll have to come back to you next year looking at adversary uh, national security innovation base. Um, you know, I think part of part of evaluating these indicators was you know very introspective, taking a look at how the United States was doing. But part of it was also looking at how the United States was doing in comparison to others like China. And there are clearly undertones with many of these indicators that, um, yes, there's room for improvement, especially when you look at some of our, you know, both both allies, but but also, uh, you know, near peer adversaries. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm going to close by saying, you know, thanks for all your work on this report card and um, pointing out those indicators and developing the system for assessment. We're looking forward to you turning some of those uh, recommendations and working with decision makers to uh, 
to, to turn those into new policy changes and behavior changes on, on all fronts, the, the defense industrial side, the commercial side, the government side as well. So uh, once more, I want to uh, thank everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the Emerging Technologies Horizon podcast. Thank my guests, Rachel Hoff and Eric Snellgrove for, for joining us today. Um, if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to hit that like button uh, and subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with all of our latest content. Um, before we end this episode, I, I want to mention that NDIA and the Emerging Technologies Institute are, are hosting our first annual Emerging Technologies Conference at the JW Marriott in Washington, D.C., uh, August 28th to 30th, 2023, so at the end of this summer. It's going to be a great opportunity for NDIA members and, and others to hear from DOD leaders, including uh, Heidi Hsu and Bill LaPlante and others, about programs and policies and business and partnership opportunities focused on the kinds of things that we talked about today with the, with the report card, how to move emerging technologies more rapidly into production and operational use to meet the missions of today and tomorrow. Uh, it'll be a chance to hear from government, industry, and academic leaders on the latest technology trends and developments in emerging technologies. Um, and of course, like all NDIA events, a great opportunity to network and develop partnerships in all of these fast moving areas. Um, registration, exhibitor opportunities, uh, an abstract portal, sponsorship information, all of that can be found on our website. And with that, I thank you for watching Emerging Technologies Horizons podcast.